That does it for an announcement. Uh, we will now be looking at our passage, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Pastor Bill will be preaching the sermon, Why the Wilderness, for us this morning. So I'll read from the ESV. As you turn to your Bibles, I will read for us as well. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We're starting a new teaching series today in the book of Mark. And we were watching Jesus as he carries out his mission here on earth. And it's a mission that takes him into constant direct conflict with evil in all its various forms. So he comes into contact with suffering, with sin, with demonic forces. And what we're going to notice is that Jesus never backs down from evil, that he always charges toward it, triumphs over it, and that he does so because he cares about the people who are enslaved by it. So as we go through this book, we want to make sure that we're not just looking at what he does, we want to make sure that we understand why he does it. That there is something about him that is moved to care for people who are trapped by evil. That he cares about you and me when we're trapped. When we know what's right, but we can't make ourselves do what's right. Or even when we can't even make ourselves care about doing what's right. I don't know if you've had that experience. A number of people have been talking to a lot of people this last year who have been cut off from feeling like they're able to attend church because of COVID. And they say things like, yeah, my relationship with God has really dropped off this past year. I don't feel as connected to him, but I don't really feel like making time to connect much with him. It's just so hard to keep going. Or somebody else who says, yeah, I have to force myself to pray. Another person, I just realized as we're talking, I've not been praying, I've not been uh, reading the scripture. I can't remember the last time I opened my Bible. Or this conversation's been really helpful. It's been pointing me back to Christ. It's exactly what I need, but I'm worried about tomorrow. I'm afraid this is all gonna evaporate, that I'm not gonna care again, that I'm gonna be right back where I started. You ever been there? Maybe you're there now. What do you need in those moments? Yes, you need a paradigm shift. You need a different way of thinking about your life and how to approach it, but you need more than that. 
You need more help that comes from outside of yourself. You need supernatural help that doesn't simply come and change your mind. Help that changes your desires. You need help that motivates you to care about what you need to care about, that moves you to want better for yourself, to want better for the people around you than you've currently been wanting. In other words, you need to know that God cares about you when you're stuck, when you're trapped. Not that he cares about people in general, but that he cares about you personally. And you need to know what he's done in the past to free other people when they were stuck, because that's going to tell you what he's doing in your life right now. It tells you what to expect from him. It tells you what you can look for from him. You need to know that he wants to meet you where you are and that he wants to help you regardless of what you're stuck in or why you're there. That's what we're going to see as we go through Mark's gospel. Now, full disclosure, I owe a lot of my thinking uh, to Tim Keller. I'd highly recommend his commentary to you on the book of Mark. It's called King's Cross. Not sure if you can see that because of the way it's glaring. It's called King's Cross. And from my perspective, this is vintage Keller. It's not a series of sermons. It's not an in-depth commentary. It's a very readable focus on Jesus and what he came to do and specifically what that means for you. I hope you get a lot of insights out of the, our study together. I think you would do even better to get yourself a copy of this book and then to read it along with our Sunday series. Now, today's passage dives right in. You'll notice this about Mark's gospel. It is just action-packed. And so it skips any kind of birth narrative, and it starts you in the wilderness. And as you look, everyone is out there in the wilderness. John the Baptist is there. Everyone from the country of Judea is there. Everyone from Jerusalem is there. Jesus is there. The Holy Spirit is there. God the Father is there. Satan is there. Everyone's there. She tells you something really important is happening. Something so momentous that it concentrates humanity, the Trinity, the demonic forces of evil in this one specific geographical location, this arid region, this desert-like area that's to the southeast of Jerusalem. Now, to understand what is so important, Scripture tells us two things. It tells us, first, why Jesus came to the earth, and then, second, what he came to do while he was here. Just two main points today. A lot of sub-points, but two main points, why Jesus came to earth and what he came to do. And the answers to those questions are all tied up with what's happening in the wilderness. So first, why did Jesus come to earth in general? And in particular, why did he come to the wilderness? Now, if you did not know who Jesus was, and almost no one did at the time, then he would look like just an ordinary person going out to hear John preaching about repentance and being baptized. Prophet Isaiah makes it very clear that Jesus didn't really have anything special about him when you saw him. Chapter 53 of his prophecy tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. At the very best, Jesus was ordinary. No one would have taken special notice of him until he comes up out of the water, and verse 10, the heavens are torn open, the Spirit of God descends on him, and the Father says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And there in the wilderness, for the first time in human history, the Trinity makes its debut. It's been hinted at in various ways in the Old Testament, nothing there is clear, nothing this clear, until Jesus stands there in the wilderness. And in that moment, you learn that our one God 
exists in three persons and always has three distinct persons of equal worth and value, persons that you can talk about in separate ways, but persons who are in each other in such a way that they are one God. Not three individual gods, not three parts of one God, but one God who exists in three persons. As hard as that is for us to imagine, as hard as that is for us to even talk about, in that moment, when you see the three together, you now understand something about the world that you cannot understand unless God is three in one. Because these three persons of our God relate to each other. They know each other. They care about each other. They care about what each other cares about. They live their lives in a way that is outward facing with each other. And so each person does not put himself at the center of their lives. Instead, they put each other first. They put first what is important to each other. And so it's right to say that our God is always relating within himself. If you want to stretch the language just a little bit, you could say he's an eternal community, a community of love, which is why love then means so much to us. Because love is an essential part of God's nature. He builds it into the heart of the universe. You know this. You know that creation exists to show God's glory in visible form. And so to be a true reflection of himself, our universe has to have this relational aspect at its core. The longer you think about this, the more you realize that the way that you and I think about love, that there is such a thing as love, that love is necessary to human flourishing. The longer you think about this, the more you realize that your belief in the importance of love only makes sense if there is a God who made you who has this relational core within himself, who loves and who has been loving before the world ever existed. See, if there is no God who made everything, but everything that you see just sort of happened by blind chance, then there can't be any reality to what we call love. In that kind of world, love only exists as a combination of impersonal chemicals. Chemicals reacting in certain ways because they have to follow certain laws from which they cannot deviate, laws that produce certain reactions because what that's what chemicals do. And so the way that you feel about someone, your spouse, your parent, your child, your friend, the human race in general, those feelings in that world don't mean anything. They're just chemistry. So don't get too attached to anyone because that attachment is what? It's just chemistry. And don't let it bother you if the important people in your life stop loving you because what? That's just a different kind of chemistry. If you reject a God who made the world, you have to embrace a world where feelings of love and feelings of rejection are simply the result of complex electrochemical interactions that are completely, utterly meaningless. Your feelings don't matter in that kind of world. Your feelings can only matter if there is a God who made you and who made everything else in the world. Otherwise, your feelings are simply pointless. But having said that, you have to realize not all gods are equal. If God is not multi-personal, if God is a monad, if he is one person in one God, then love is not essential to who he is. Love is not essential to his being. It might be something he can do, but it's not at the core of who he is. 
It's not a necessary aspect of him. He's been getting along fine without it. If it's not a necessary aspect of him, then it's not a necessary aspect to the world that he's made, which means it cannot be at the heart of this world, which means it cannot be at the heart of you. And so what you feel about others is also not very important. It's not essential if God is a monad. Only a multi-personal God, our three-in-one God, is capable of making a world where love is essential, where love is based on giving, not on needing. See, from all eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit have been loving each other so that our God has no needs. God does not create the universe in order to be loved because he has some deficiency, he has some neediness, he needs to be served. He he doesn't need any of that. He doesn't need to be loved. He already is. He's been living in love before time began, which means that he creates the world not to be loved, but in order to love to give away some of what he experiences within himself. And what he longs to give away is what we desperately need, to be loved, to be loved by him, to know that his basic stance toward us is love, to know that he's not trying to get something from us, but that he's trying to give something to us, not moving toward us to manipulate us, but so that we could live knowing that he delights in us and that he delights in who we are. To know that he says to us, just like the father said to Jesus, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. It's the deepest need of the human heart to know that we are loved and cherished by the one who made us, that he is pleased with us, that he likes us. Isn't that what you long to hear from God? That you are his beloved child? Not his tolerated child, not his disappointing child, not his frustrating child, his high maintenance child, his not really what I wanted child, but that you are his beloved child, that you are embraced, that you're welcomed, desired, that you are wanted. How would your life change if you knew deep down that you are loved by God? that he loves you, that he cannot love you anymore if he tried. What would change if you knew that? If it affected how you thought about yourself, if it affected how you thought about others, what would be different? Would it still hurt to live in this world? Would people's meanness still bother you? Of course it would. But the depth of hurt and the duration of hurt would change. Because if the God who spins universes from his fingertips is over the top in love with you, there's only so much that other people can do to you. They can hurt you, but they cannot touch or change how he feels about you. They can't change the one love in the universe that actually can last, that time will not wear down, that death will not end. Knowing that God loves you gives you a place of stability and security in this world that no person and no circumstance can take away from you, ever. You're still impacted by people and things that happen in life, but you're not controlled by them. They affect you. They don't rule you. They don't rule your reactions. They don't dictate your emotions. And that's the litmus test for how you can tell if 
you know the love of God. That's how you can tell if you have experienced him saying to you, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Pay attention to your emotions. Watch your emotions. And they'll tell you if you live out of his love or if you're unsure of his love. If your fundamental outlook on life changes because of how people are treating you, if you are only optimistic and confident and joyful when people are treating you well, then you don't know the love of God as much as you know their love. When your spouse has to meet your needs in order for you to lovingly meet theirs, when there has to be reciprocity or you decide not to love, you don't really know that you're loved by God, that you already have access to more love than you are ever going to need. When you have to impress your teachers, your professors, parents, employers, so that they can then think well of you, so that you can then think well of you because they're thinking well of you, then you have not heard the Father say he is well pleased with you. You're looking for someone else to say that. When you're starving for scraps of attention and praise from other human beings, you don't know that there's an ocean of love and an ocean of delight for you to lose yourself in. You haven't experienced it to that level. When you have to add something to God's love in order to have a good life, then you don't know that you're beloved. When you say things like, I know God loves me, but what good is that if I can't get a date? Then you don't know his love very deeply. When you say, I know God loves me, but what good is that if my peers don't respect me? then you don't live knowing that he is well pleased with you. If life is not worth living unless your child obeys you, your employer promotes you, you have a job that you like, your wife smiles at you, your husband asks you about your day, more people like your social, post, your social media post than like the ones before. If life isn't worth living unless these things are true, then you have to face the fact no, you don't really know the love of God. You don't know it like you need to know it. Because you can't build your life on all of those things out there. Those are va external variables that you can't control. They're all things that are outside of you. What you need for stability in life, what you need in order to move forward in life is knowing that the one who has made you in his image, who thought up all the intricacies of your gifts, your talents, the way that you think, the, the things that you are passionate about, the things you can't stand, your personality, your quirks. You need to know that he loves you with your quirks, that he's well pleased with you, that it's a settled question. It's not open for debate. You know that you can run to him and he won't blow you off. He won't be upset with you. He won't reject you. He won't ignore you. He won't belittle you. But that he'll receive you because he wants you and that he will fill you with his love and that that will be enough. Frankly, it will be more than you can actually handle. That's why Jesus is there in the wilderness because there's doubt in the human race. Does God really love me? After all I've done, after how I've ignored him, after how I've taken him for granted, does he love me? Will he still love me? There's doubt because there's reason to doubt and the reason goes all the way back to our first ancestors. 
God offered his love to the human race in the Garden of Eden. He offered love for love, his love for our love. He gave Adam a very specific command. He could eat from any tree in the garden except one. God withheld just one tree from Adam, but he didn't tell him why. He didn't give him a reason because it was an opportunity for Adam to decide what he loved most, to decide what is it that is at the center of his life. See, God's command asked Adam a question. Does everything in your life revolve around God and revolve around what God thinks? Or does it revolve around Adam and what Adam thinks? See, if God had given Adam a reason, then Adam would have obeyed because he'd have said to himself, I see the goodness and I see the value in the reason, not because I see the goodness and the value in God who gave the command. And so I choose to obey the command because I happen to agree with it. That would put Adam at the center of his world. He would obey because he thought it was a good reason to obey, a good idea to obey. That's not true obedience because that's not love. So God didn't give a reason. Adam didn't obey. He didn't trust that what God said was best simply because God said it. And so he went with what he thought was best. He didn't trust God and that's the heart of disobedience. It's the heart that each one of us has. The heart that has proven over and over and over again that we don't deserve God's love and that we certainly can't expect to hear him say that he is well pleased with us. That's the human dilemma. We were made for love, made to be loved. It's only by being loved that we can live lives that are not jerked around all the time by what happens to us, but we've rejected that love. Not once, not twice, but over and over again. And so we have no confidence that God would ever say to us, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. At least we can't believe that he would say it and actually mean it. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why he's standing there in the wilderness. Because even though he is the eternal son of God, who has existed and been loved before time began, that, re that reality is not revealed to us until when? until he comes up from the water of baptism. It's only then for the first time that the Trinity, this eternal, personal outflow of love, reveals itself to humanity. Now, why then? What's special about that moment? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, a baptism for the cleansing of the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism where a person said physically with their actions, I'm dirty. I have trusted me more than I've trusted God and I cannot clean myself and I hate this way of life. And so I repent. I turn from trusting to make myself, myself to make me better and I trust that like this water cleanses my body that God will cleanse my soul and I trust him simply because he said he would. I obey, I come to be cleansed simply on the basis of what he said, not on the basis of what I think. That's what John preached, that people needed to prepare themselves for God's coming Messiah, that they needed to be cleansed from not trusting God. And Jesus goes out to the wilderness to John and is baptized. Now, why did he do that? 
He didn't have any sins to confess. John says in verse 7 that the one coming, the Messiah, Jesus, that Jesus is so far above John that John's not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. In that day, that was a filthy, disgusting job that, that Hebrew servants were exempt from. John is saying that he's not worthy to serve Jesus in any way whatsoever, not even in the lowest way possible. And then he goes on to say that Jesus is so much higher that he will, verse 8, baptize people with the Holy Spirit, with God's Spirit. He will pour out God's Spirit on people. That's an activity that's reserved for God. This Jesus is not one who needs to repent. He's not one who has sins to repent of. So why is he being baptized? Look at the picture. Jesus, the Son of God, has gone into water. And then he personally meets with God, and then he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted not to trust God while he endures dangerous circumstances. It's the picture that you have there in the wilderness. What does that sound like? back into the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 4, when dealing with Egypt, who had enslaved his people, God calls Israel, my son. So when they left Egypt, Israel, God's son, did what? They walked through the Red Sea. God's son walked through water, then met God personally at Mount Sinai, and then they were out in the wilderness for 40 years where they were tempted not to trust God in the middle of dangerous circumstances. And you start to hear the parallels to here. So when Jesus is baptized, it's not for his sake. It's because he's identifying himself with the people of God. And specifically, he's identifying with them in their sin and weakness. He doesn't bring his own failings to the table. He doesn't have any to bring, but he takes on theirs. He makes what belongs to them his own. And it's only afterward, after identifying with them in their rebellion against God, that God reveals his essence as the multi-personal God who has an abundance of love to give away. What is Jesus saying by identifying with his people in that moment? He's saying, I've come to this earth, to this dangerous wilderness, to ally myself with God's children, to bring God's people home. I've identified with them so that what belongs to them now belongs to me. I now owe their sin guilt. And what belongs to me, my sonship with God, will belong to them. What belongs to me will be something that they share in. When I'm done, what I came to do, they too will hear God say, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. That's why Jesus is there in the wilderness. It's because God wants you. He's pursuing you. Not angrily, not half-heartedly, unwillingly, not like he's come to collect a debt that you've been skipping out on, not to make you pay, but he's pursuing you with all of his heart. You're the child of a father who wants you like the father of the prodigal son wanted his child. A father who drops everything to run after his son, to embrace him, to restore him to his rightful place in the family. It's how God wants you. You're the partner of a lover who thinks you're irresistible. He will do anything to have you, including pain, whatever it costs to have you. Like the prophet Hosea who, brought back, who bought back his unfaithful wife. You are wanted, 
not out of need, but out of desire. Desire to bring you into the experience of love that's been going on long before time began. That's point one. It's why Jesus is here in the wilderness. It's to bring you into love. Now point two and, and much quicker. What did Jesus have to do so that we can be with him and know that he loves us? We've already hinted at it. He came to deal with sin, to forgive you of your sins, and secondly, to give you something in return for your sin. Both of those are very important, forgiveness and giving you something in return. Dealing with sin is your most fundamental need. It's the need that is below all other needs. It's because your sin is in the way of God's love. John says that Jesus is going to baptize people with his Holy Spirit. He's going to bring them into a personal, intimate embrace with God. It sounds amazing to receive the Holy Spirit. It's wonderful. But only if you are holy yourself. If your goodness is the same kind as God's goodness. Jesus' was, and so the Spirit could descend on him. The Spirit could find a home with him a home that did not reject or create tension between them. The Holy Spirit could descend on Jesus because Jesus himself was holy. But what if you're not? Then to be anywhere near the Spirit of God is going to destroy you. God warned his people in the Old Testament that he could not get too near them because then his holiness, his justice, would break out against them and destroy them. The source of their life, the source of their love, had to hold himself back from them because of their sin. And so John came preaching that if they wanted to be ready for this one who was coming, then they needed to repent. That was necessary, but it's not enough. They needed to repent, but if that was enough, if that was all it took, then there was no need for Jesus to ever leave heaven and come to earth. His presence on earth says that when we hate our sin, when we hate our mistrust of God, that's a necessary condition, but it's not enough. Not enough to forgive us. We need something more. We need our sin taken away, and we need something put back in its place. We need holiness, too. We need more than just an absence of badness. We need the presence of goodness. See, when we mistrust God in any way, we now have badness in our lives and we have no goodness. But we need a life of lived out goodness in order to be embraced by God. That's why as soon as Jesus is baptized, immediately he goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. What's he doing out there? He's battling Satan. And in his humanity, he is resisting all of the temptations that Satan throws at him. Not in a nice garden like Adam had. Jesus is tempted out in the wilderness. Not surrounded by abundant fruit trees that he can take his pick from whenever he's hungry in a place where there is no food. Not among Adam's anim animals that accepted his authority over them, but Jesus is in a cursed world where verse 13, he's in danger from wild animals. Not with the promise given to Adam. Here's the pathway to life, Adam. Trust me, obey me, and live. Jesus, however, had a different promise. It was an awful promise. Here's the pathway to the cross, Jesus. Trust me. Never turn from me. Obey me all your life. Choose me over Satan every single time. Obey me, and you will die. 
What is Jesus doing out there? He's trusting God over and over and over again every single time Satan tempts him not to. He is living a perfectly holy life as a human being. The kind of life that can stand in God's presence and receive God's spirit without being destroyed. And he's doing it so that not only will he take what belongs to you, your guilt for sin, but so that he can share what belongs to him, his goodness earned as a human being. He's out there living the life that you and I should have lived. Why? He's here to deal with sin. He's here to deal with our most fundamental need as human beings. The problem of sin is the need that drove John to preach. It's the need that moved people to come out to him in the wilderness. It's the need that moved Jesus there too. Dealing with sin is our most fundamental need, but it's a need that is out of fashion in the modern world. We don't use the word sin very often. When we do, we tend to sneer at it. We sort of roll our eyes and say, oh yeah, sin. Or we use it lightly. That chocolate cake was sinful. But we don't use the word in a way that creates this internal drive, this compulsion to pick everything up, travel out into the uncomfortable, dangerous wilderness just for the hope that somehow, maybe, there's a way that we can get rid of this thing called sin. We don't feel like that in the modern world. For us, sin is an empty category. We go to incredible lengths to describe bad things in this world. We have whole disciplines to do that. Psychology, sociology, anthropology, political science. We describe bad things in this world in great detail. We attribute various causes to the bad things. We try to figure out what is wrong with individuals. What's wrong with society? We go to incredible lengths. We develop rich, robust categories, but we will not use the word sin. We avoid talking about the underlying problem below all the other causes. The cause that causes all of the other causes that we study in great detail. We won't talk about that because it's not something that we can fix. It means that we have to acknowledge at the root of it all, the cause of all causes is that I have rebelled against God. I've rejected love. We don't want to say that. And so for many of us, sin is an empty category. It doesn't feel like it describes our lived experience certainly not in ways that are rich and detailed. It's the theological word. We recognize it. We approve of it in the theological realm. But it does not inform how we see ourselves in the world around us as much as other words and categories do. So we don't use the word sin. Now, why is this important? Because Jesus came to deal with sin. Read the passage again. You realize that's the context of his coming. It's the backdrop to revealing himself and starting his mission that it all revolves around the issue of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That is what's keeping you from God. That's what's driving God to come to earth. But if we don't see the problem through the same lens that he does, we won't really understand what it is that he came to do. We won't understand what it is that he's doing in our lives. We will look for solutions to the problems of living in something other than what he offers we're going to aim at a different goal than what he has. If your assessment of the ultimate cause of whatever is wrong in the world does not involve thinking about sin in some way, to have a connection to sin in some way, then it's impossible 
for the gospel to be any part of the solution. You won't see any need of it. It won't make any sense to you why Jesus is out there in the wilderness and you will miss out on what he's offering. Back in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, there are two goats that are used to make atonement for the people once a year. One is killed as a sin offering to atone for the sins of the people. The high priest takes the other goat and he lays his hands on the head of that goat and he confesses the sin of the people of Israel while he has his hands on the goat. He symbolically transfers the people's sin to the goat, puts them on the goat, and then sends the goat away where? Out into the wilderness. And the goat takes the sin of the people away from the people so that, that sin is no more. So that there's no reason for God not to love them, not to delight in them, not to be well pleased with them. Here's Jesus in verse 12. He's just identified with the people in their sin. He's loaded down with the sins of his people and immediately the Spirit drives him out where? Into the wilderness. He's driven away from the people, driven away in anticipation of the day when he takes sin away from his people once for all so that nothing stands between them and God, so that nothing stands between you and God, between you and God's love, so that you hear God say, you are my beloved child, so that you hear that, and so that you believe him when he says that. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for not staying in heaven. Thank you for coming to this earth. Thank you for coming to the worst parts of this earth to deal with the worst parts of us. Thank you, Lord, that you were willing to embrace everything the Father asked of you, that you were willing to be driven out into the wilderness, away from us, away from God, being forsaken by God on the cross so that we would only know the love of God, we would only know the smile of God. Lord, let us live that reality today. Speak the words of love into each one of your people's hearts. And Lord, if there are people who do not know you, stir them so that they want in on what you've offered. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.